Good morning, my brothers and sisters. Our scripture reading this morning is from John's Gospel, John chapter 19. We'll be reading verses 16 to 30. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. And you'll find this passage of scripture on page 905 in the pew Bible. So John 19, starting at verse 16. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. Each part, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for, for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, and to fulfill Scripture, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we return to the Gospel of John this morning, we're returning to John's account of the suffering and death of Christ. It's significant that in the creed that we recite every Sunday, we don't just simply say, that he died and was buried. But we declare every Sunday, he suffered and died and was buried. And all four Gospels emphasize 
and draw our attention, not just to the death of Jesus, but to the suffering of Jesus. And the account that we just heard is John's report of the crucifixion. And he begins this way in verse 16. So they delivered him over to be crucified. Now when we read that, we tend to hear that as a matter-of-fact statement. And it seems routine. So he handed him over to be crucified. But the reason it seems matter-of-fact and routine to us is because of the way that we hear it. It's because of us. Uh, We've become dulled to the reality and the horror of crucifixion. For many of us, the cross is and can be reduced simply to a theological concept. When we think of the cross, we tend to think of the salvation of Christ and his atonement. But we think about it in in an abstract way, as a theological concept. And we tend to see crosses as religious symbols. There's a cross behind me right here. Some of you have a necklace with a cross on it. But we need to remember and we need to face the reality of crucifixion. And we are far removed from crucifixion and our own experience, but it's helpful to remember that the early Christians, when they're reading the gospel and they hear that statement, that Pilate, that Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified, it wasn't an abstract statement to them. Because in their day-to-day life, they saw people being crucified. They witnessed crucifixion. And just imagine how you would have heard the text that we just heard if on the way to worship here this morning, you passed by people groaning and gasping for air, suffering on a cross. And so we are confronted, and John confronts us with the reality of crucifixion this morning. Now, in the ancient world, crucifixion was routine. It was common. It happened all the time. It happened... In many places. But at the same time, most people didn't talk about crucifixion. If you look at all of our ancient sources from late antiquity, there are very few references to crucifixion. And one of the Roman philosophers and politicians named Cicero wrote this. The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of the Roman citizen but from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. The very mention of these things, the very mention of crucifixion is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. In other words, we don't talk about it. We don't mention the word cross. We don't talk about crucifixion. And yet when we come to the New Testament, when we come to the Gospels, We don't see there that hesitation, that reservation, that sensibility to avoid talking about crucifixion, to avoid the very mention of the cross. In fact, for historians who are studying this, the most detailed accounts we have of crucifixion from the ancient world are found right here in our Bibles, in Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, and John. 
Cicero tells us we don't even say the word cross. And in the few verses that we just heard, the word cross or crucifixion is mentioned seven times. Cross or crucifixion is mentioned 73 times in the New Testament. Cicero says, don't talk about it. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we also need to remember this. When we read and we consider the accounts of the resurrection in the Gospels, what was it that testified to the resurrection? What was it that caused the disciples to recognize that this is their risen Lord and Savior? It was the marks of crucifixion. And our risen Lord Jesus in glory still bears and eternally bears the marks of crucifixion. So in the ancient world, they say, we don't talk about the cross. But there is an eternal witness to crucifixion in the very body of our glorified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now, John does not let us turn a blind eye to crucifixion. And as we consider this passage this morning, we can't simply come to it with a certain curiosity or a certain concern about the theology of the cross. We need to confront the reality of the cross. And we need to confront these passages in Scripture with fear and trembling. Now, I want us to consider what John reports here concerning the crucifixion in terms of what it reveals to us, the revelation of the cross. And there's three things I want us to see. First, the cross reveals the reality of our sin. Secondly, the cross reveals the reality of our shame and our affliction. And the shame and the affliction of our sin. And then finally, the cross reveals the reality of God's redeeming love. So first, the cross reveals the reality of our sin. Listen again to the first few verses of our passage, starting at verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now notice the, the place of crucifixion. Notice where the crucifixion happened. You know, we sing in one of the hill, hymns, on a hill far away. It wasn't on a hill far away. And we tend to have images of the crucifixion, and uh, you, you, may, you, know, you may immediately call to mind such images that you've seen of the silhouettes of three crosses. Just the silhouettes of three crosses. Uh, on a hill at a distance, against a pretty landscape. Well, those kinds of images and that way of thinking about crucifixion does not help us understand the reality of crucifixion. Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. And a few verses later, John tells us that it was near the city. 
the place of a skull near the city. This was a place that was highly visible. This was a place that was public. This was a place that was well-trafficked. And it was the place of a skull. It was the place of crucifixion. Crucifixions happen here all, of, all the time. And this is not a pretty landscape. Imagine what you would behold if you saw that place, if you were at that place. Crucifixions happening there all the time. Crosses being put up. Crosses taken down day by day. Imagine what you would have seen there. Imagine what you would have, would have heard there. Imagine what you would have smelled there. He was taken to the place of, a, of the skull. It was an accursed place. It was hell. And the very act of crucifixion itself was a mode of execution which was designed. It was designed to maximize not only physical suffering but psychological suffering. It was meant to degrade. It was meant to dehumanize. It was a vile, cruel death. And it was a vile, cruel death that wasn't just restricted to, the, to Roman times or even the Roman Empire. This wasn't simply a Roman means of execution. In fact, we do have evidence from the ancient world of crucifixion being practiced all over the ancient world. Not just by the Romans, by the Greeks, by the Persians, by the Assyrians, by the Scythians, by North Africans, by the Celts, by the Britons, by the Germanic peoples. It was a very particular yet universal expression of human depravity in the ancient world. And it's easy for us to look back and say, yes, what, what, a, what a primitive and barbaric expression of depravity in that former time. In that barbaric time. But it's not, that's not, that's not us. And Mike mentioned Afghanistan in our prayers. And we look on with horror at the things that we see in Afghanistan. And we're shocked and we're offended by the barbaric practices of the Taliban. But let's not deceive ourselves. Do you know that while we are here worshiping this morning, during this time of our worship... 15 babies will have been murdered in the womb in Canada. One or two people will have died by lethal injection from a doctor. Now there was humiliation and shame in crucifixion. But we have a multi-billion dollar porn industry in our society that is protected, it's promoted... And the shame and the humiliation and the human degradation of other people, that is on display for our entertainment, our gratification. And let's never think that our society is any less barbaric simply because we carry out our murder and our abuse with people who wear white coats or nice suits. So crucifixion is a particular expression of universal human depravity. But it's a, it's a particular expression of the depravity of our own sin. It's an expression of the depravity of my sin. It's an expression of the depravity of your sin. The cross reveals the reality of our sin. And here we need to remember... 
that scripture in the gospel does not simply declare that Christ died for our sins. It declares that Christ died on the cross for our sins. He was crucified for our sins. He died a vile, abhorrent, disgusting death for our sins because our sins are vile, disgusting, abhorrent to God. Let's never refer to our sin as a mistake or an error. It is a vile, personal affront to God. And our Lord didn't just die for our sins. He was crucified for our sins. In his degradation, in his debasement, in his suffering, his shame, his humiliation is a revelation of how vile our sin is. Now remember what the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now think of what Peter is saying there. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The cross reveals the reality of our sin. And brothers and sisters, those of you who are persisting in your sin, those of you who are not confessing your sin, you're not repenting of your sin, see in the cross of Christ how vile your sin is. Why do you continue in it? He bore your sins in his body on the tree. So Peter says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Crucify that sin. Die to that sin. So the cross reveals the reality of our sin. Secondly, the cross reveals the reality of the shame and the affliction of our sin. And here we pay attention to the passages of Scripture from the Old Testament that John quotes. Because in our passage, twice he says, this was to fulfill the scripture. On the one hand, this tells us that everything is happening according to the scriptures. According to God's word and command. According to his plan and purpose. But the references that John cites are significant because... We may think, if he's going to quote passages of Scripture, why not quote Isaiah 53? Why not quote another passage from Isaiah, an obvious messianic passage? Why not refer to the Exodus? Why not refer to the Passover lamb? Why not quote those verses? But instead, he quotes two verses from two lament psalms. Psalm 22, which Pastor Mike read in his prayer. And Psalm 69. These are psalms where David is crying out in his desperation. He's crying out in his affliction. He's crying out for deliverance and rescue. Listen to Psalm 22, verses 14 to 18. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust, dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
Now, why didn't John cite that verse? But then David continues, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. That's the verse John quotes. That's the verse that's been fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. Listen again to what John reports. John 19, 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then John says, this was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now why does John cite this verse? Why does he say this is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus? Because the implication of the soldiers dividing up the garments of our Lord, the outer garments, the implications of them casting lots for his tunic, the undergarments, is that our Lord was crucified naked on the cross, which people were crucified naked. And John wants wants to point us to that reality of crucifixion, that shame and humiliation of crucifixion. But remember what we read in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, after they fell, after they sinned, they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. And John is telling us that our Lord has borne the shame of our sin. He bears our shame. And some of you have come here this morning and you know that you are forgiven. You know your sins are forgiven, but you still bear the shame of your sin. And our Lord has borne the shame of your sin. And many of us, many of us feel the, the, the shame of sin most deeply, most sharply because of sexual sin. Our Lord bore the shame of your sin. We have this wonderful image in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Having borne the shame of our sin, he then clothes us in his righteousness. Revelation 19 says, we are clothed in white linen, bright and pure. He bore your shame and he clothes you in his righteousness. He clothes you in his life. He clothes you, he clothes you in his holiness. So John cites Psalm 22 in the verse about the garments of the suffering servant because he wants us to know the reality of the shame of Christ and the reality that he has borne our shame. The other psalm that John cites and says is fulfilled is Psalm 69. So John 19, verses 28 to 29, John writes this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, yes, our Lord was physically and desperately thirsty on the cross. And 
He needed that physical thirst quenched. But the thirst here with which he thirsts goes much deeper than that. There's a deeper desperation. There's a deeper affliction. And we see that when we look to Psalm 69, the psalm that is fulfilled. Listen to verses 19 to 21. Here again, David is crying out and he's saying to God, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Now for our Lord's thirst, they gave him sour wine to drink. And when our Lord says that he thirsts, he is saying that all of the reproach, all of the shame, all of the dishonor, all of the despair, the abandonment that David expresses in this psalm, I've taken that to myself. He's taken the affliction of our sin upon himself. The affliction that we have suffered because of the sin of other people. The reproaches of other people. The dishonor of other people. The despair that is caused when our hearts are broken by other people. The betrayal of other people. The abandonment of other people. Our Lord was betrayed and abandoned by his own disciples. Our Lord was mocked and reproached by his own people. And John points us back to Psalm 69 because he wants to tell us that the very depths of our brokenheartedness, the very depths of our, our shame and the slander that has come against us, the dishonor, the reproach, the abandonment, the betrayal, our Lord bore that too. And some of you are here this morning and you're afflicted by these things. It's not just a physical need. There's that, that spiritual and psychological and emotional affliction. You've been betrayed. You've been abandoned. You've been slandered. You've been shamed. You've been humiliated. Our Lord bore it all on the cross. And remember what God announces through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And John reveals the reality that he has borne our griefs, he has borne our sorrows. All of, all of the wounds that we bear because of sin, the physical wounds, the psychological wounds, the spiritual wounds, the emotional wounds, our Lord was wounded. And by his wounds you have been healed. The prophet declares it, the apostle declares it. By his wounds, you have been healed. So the cross reveals the reality of our sin. The cross reveals and affirms and heals the reality of our shame and our affliction because of sin. And finally, the cross reveals the reality of his redeeming love. Listen again to John 19, 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, 
Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, it is true that our Lord is concerned for the practical care of his mother. And he wants his mother to be cared for when he goes. And he, he entrusts her care to the disciple whom he loves. But there's a deeper significance and a deeper implication to what Jesus has done here. Because as he looks down and he sees there his mother and he sees there the disciple whom he loved. And he says to them, woman, behold your son. And he says to the disciple whom he loved, behold your mother. The implication of that is that now the disciple whom he loves is his brother. Because now his mother is his mother. And so the implication is now this disciple is his brother. And we're reminded here of the announcement at the very beginning of the gospel that whoever received him, whoever received Jesus and believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And his redeeming love is a love that redeems us as children of God. A love that makes us his brothers, his sisters. So when he says this to the beloved disciple and to his mother, he is pointing to the reality of his adoptive, redemptive love. That all those who would receive him and believe in him would be brought into his very family. And he says this to the beloved disciple because throughout the gospel, we are drawn attention to this unique relationship. This is the one that knows the love of Jesus. This is the one who was loved by Jesus. And remember what that love is. And we've heard it several times through chapters 13 to 17. The love with which the Father has loved me, I have loved you. As I have loved you, you ought to love one another. And at the end of John 17, at the end of his prayer, Jesus says to his Father, I made known to them your name. I revealed you to them. They know you now, the Father. And I will continue to make it known. He does that by the Spirit, the Spirit of adoption. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. The love of God the Father for God the Son. And if the love of God the Father for God the Son is now in us, and if we receive that love, that means that we are sons of our Heavenly Father. We're children of God. And here he says to the disciple whom he loves, you are now my brother. You've been brought into the family of the triune God. And so on the cross, we see the answer to Jesus' prayer. That we would be loved with the Father, even as the Father loves the Son. And it's a reminder of what the Apostle Paul says, because Paul always goes back to the reality of the cross, and he wants us to never forget that we see one another, our brothers and sisters, in the light of that love, in the light of the cross. And so there is a sense where we always recognize that we are a people who, like this beloved disciple, brothers of Christ, stand by the cross. And remember what the Apostle Paul says when he speaks of our relationships with one another. Never forget, remember that your brother is one for whom Christ died. And because of the crucifixion of our Lord, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Now, how do we respond to John's account of the crucifixion? Twofold. First, we we acknowledge the reality of our sin. We repent of it. And we turn to Christ. And the announcement at the very beginning of the gospel, whoever receives him and believes in his name, he gives the right to be called children of God. Having been confronted with the reality of your sin, having been confronted with the deeper reality of our Lord's suffering for your sin, repent of your sin, turn away from it, and turn to him, receive him. Believe in his name. And then secondly, we respond by falling down and worshiping him. And John points us to Psalm 22. He points us to Psalm 69 because these psalms of lament, these psalms which articulate the cry of our affliction and suffering in this world, lead us to praise, lead us to worship. And we see that worship and that praise now in the light of the suffering and affliction of our Lord. And so Psalm 69 concludes this way. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. Let heaven and earth praise him. Let seas and everything that moves in them. And then Psalm 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Now, Pastor Mike mentioned this. Our Lord on the cross praised the first line of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Hebrews 2 tells us that this psalm is about Christ and this psalm is a prayer of Christ. So our Lord says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Every time we gather in his name, he is telling of the praise of his Father, and he is leading us in worship. And he he addresses us as his brothers. And then he says, You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. No, he's not despised it or abhorred it. He's taken it on. And he has not hidden his face from him. He has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. And then listen to this. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Every Sunday when we come here to worship him, We are coming in response to the cross. We are coming in to acknowledge the reality of what the cross reveals, the reality of our sin, the reality of our Lord bearing our sin, our sorrow, our shame, our affliction, the reality of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we come, therefore, to sing. We come, therefore, to praise him. And notice how the psalm ends, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. That's why we come to this table every Sunday. And our Lord cried out with his last breath, it is finished. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's taken it away. It is once and for all done, finished. He's borne our sin. He's borne our shame. He's borne our grief, our sorrow, our affliction. He has made us his own brothers. 
And every Sunday we come to this table, and this table and the celebration of this meal is a declaration of that reality. This meal says, yes, it is finished. And we come here and we eat and we are satisfied. And it's a confirmation that he has borne our sin, he has borne our shame. It's a confirmation that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the family table. And as we come to this meal now, knowing the reality of the cross and the reality that this meal declares to us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, let's come also recognizing that in this meal we see the outflowing of the abundance of the riches of the kindness of his grace. And I want us to come to this table now with these words, this question from the Apostle Paul in our minds. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, his, for us all, and we know how he gave him up. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And this meal reminds us this morning that we are with him. And in this meal, we see and we receive grace upon grace.